As I began to open the door and he had his gun in my back, I could feel it, you know. I didn't think I was going to go, not in a million years. There was just absolutely no way, because when somebody's got a gun at your body, you feel like you're not going to make any decisions about anything. This is Emma Slade. And in this episode of The Journey, we're going to take you on her odyssey, from living a life she thought she wanted to a harrowing experience that made her do a 180. This is a story about the trip that changed everything. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is The Journey. The Journey is an original podcast by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, where we meet extraordinary people whose lives are transformed by travel. Emma Slade worked in the high-rolling world of finance as an analyst based in Hong Kong. It was a job she loved. And in September of 1997, she was sent to Jakarta. The Asian financial crisis had begun, and it was her job to see just how much trouble her bank's Indonesian investments were in. I had a tough day, asked some tough questions. I thought I'd done well. And I went back to my lovely five-star hotel, feeling like, yeah, I did a good job there. You know, I've got to the bottom of this, and I'm going to recommend we do this, this, and this. Emma was back in her hotel room when she heard a knock at the door. I had, like, a black war silk Versace suit with covered buttons, and I'd put it into the dry cleaning. There was a knock at the door, and I presumed it was going to be that, or towels being delivered, etc. So... Emma opened the door. There was a gun that was pushed into my chest and the man behind the gun pushed into the room and the door closed. And I just thought I was going to die because I didn't understand why a man with a gun was now in my room with me and what he was doing there. So I was just just cowering on the floor, begging for my life because I presumed he was about to kill me. I had a gun at my head. And then, uh, yeah, it's hard to digest, you know, because you're reacting to something that you just never thought was ever going to happen to you. So yeah, it's not something you've rehearsed, you know. And I didn't know if it actually linked to the meetings that I'd had that day, that I'd been too tough with these businesses. I'd asked too many questions, and he was there to make sure he'd found the right person and was going to, you know, get rid of that person. This man seemed very interested in who she was. But he also started taking her stuff, like her credit cards and her Cartier watch. Emma said he looked slimy. Thin, very thin, wiry kind of uh, person with uh, sleek back black hair and a very shiny suit and very shiny, creaky shoes. Did he at any point say what he wanted? No. And he held the gun to your head at one point? Yeah. And did you try to get away? Well, I mean, once the door's closed, how am I going to get away, right? There's no exit points. Where, where's your exit point, right? You've got a man with a gun, you know, either very, very close to you or on you. And how do you turn that around? He was very agitated. There was a lot of walking around, walking back and forth, fiddling with things. And then I just don't know. He just didn't leave. Yeah. But terrifying because at any moment, you know, you just didn't know what was going to happen. 
when he came into the room, I must have screamed a lot, which was heard in other rooms. But I don't actually remember screaming. I just think it, you're in such shock and such fear that you feel completely silent. But that alerted the hotel that something was going on. About half an hour after the man entered her room, the phone rang. Emma picked up, and a hotel employee asked if she was okay. She didn't want to raise her captor's suspicions, so she said yes. The employee then asked if someone was there with her. She said yes. A few minutes later, there was a knock at her door. Emma answered. The man in her room stood behind her, out of sight, with the gun in her back. So she answered that she was fine. The hotel employee left. Once they came to the room and went away from the room again, then we knew we were trapped because they knew. Then he knew and I knew that people knew that we were there. What started out as an apparent robbery was now a hostage taking. I think you can imagine that every, every second in that room felt like a very long period of time and a very, like nobody knew. Obviously, my mum didn't know and my family didn't know. It's just the sense that you're unable to tell anybody that you're in that situation. I'm going to die in this room and and nobody's even going to know. When I was in that room pleading for my life, I felt very like I hadn't done anything that had made a difference. And I felt very much that particularly I felt I hadn't loved anybody and I hadn't been loved. And I felt as if parts of me just hadn't grown up and that if I died then, I just would have died without caring about anybody, really. Afternoon turned into evening, and then there was another knock at the door. I had an opportunity to open the door with the gun in my back, and I chose to run, which apparently I shouldn't have done because it was extremely dangerous. But when you've been waiting for a door to open and it finally opens, you just don't really care. You just want to go through the door. There was no thought in it and when I as I began to open the door and he had his gun in my back I could feel it you know I didn't think I was going to go not in a million years there was just absolutely no way because when somebody's got a gun at your body you feel like you're not going to make any decisions about anything you feel very disempowered in my eye line I could see these crouched soldiers and policemen with guns right then I guess I felt like okay he's one person here with one gun and there's about 70 people here with their guns instinctively you just think this is my chance I knew that I could see them and he couldn't and I had a minute to run and I ran then lots of police and army went into the room behind me firing guns I was in there I think for about two and a half hours yeah Emma was safe It turned out her captor was not a hired assassin. He was just a gambler intent on a simple robbery. The police got him. And after giving them her statement, Emma moved to a different room in the same hotel that same night. I do remember phoning my mum and just saying, you know, mum, I'm fine, but I have been held up by an armed gunman. Nothing to worry about. I do remember doing that. Because I wanted to tell somebody, but I didn't want to make a big drama about it, you know? Despite her harrowing experience, Emma went back to work the very next day. I still did my meetings. I'm just not a quitter. And I just was going to finish my job. I don't think anything's worth doing unless you're really going to, you know, do it with your best effort. Yeah. 
no half measures for you. Not really, no. That is an understatement. Emma's never been one for half measures, and when she was young, Emma's father picked up on that. I like a challenge, and I like doing things that um, maybe are not expected of me. My father thought I should go into the city and be an investment banker. And what did you think when he said that? I thought it was cool because I thought that women didn't do that kind of thing. So I thought he was expressing some sort of faith in me that I could be kind of greater than my gender appeared. When Emma put her mind to something, she always gave it her all. I did English and history at Cambridge, then I did fine art at Goldsmiths, and then eventually I did financial analytics. That might sound like an odd combination, but when Emma was in university, her father died. And that had a big impact. She decided to trust his instincts and went into finance. And I thought it would be a good thing to see if he was right and to become kind of successful and financially independent. And where were you working? New York, uh, then London and then Hong Kong. Most of my career was in Hong Kong. Yeah. How many hours a week? Oh, I mean, it's like seven days a week, you know, all the time. Yeah, because the financial markets move really, really fast. They're global. Everything's in a different time zone. So you often need to be aware of what's happening in Japan, America, Europe. So it requires a lot of attention. Like a lot of investment bankers, probably my life was quite rigid. You get up, then you go swimming, you do some kind of physical exercise, then you have breakfast, then you go to work, then you have lunch, then you go to work. It's a very ordered way of living. And obviously you haven't got any children, you haven't got a partner, so it's a very work-orientated life. I was very interested in being successful. I wanted to be smart well-informed. If you asked me what's the forecast for economic growth in Indonesia next year, I wanted to be able to tell you exactly. And if you asked me some question about the petrochemical industry in Thailand and vertical integration, I wanted to be able to tell you exactly. I think everybody in investment banking wants to be the smartest person in the room. And I was no different. To look at Emma, you'd think she was living the life. Most investment bankers are very interested in their bonus. I liked Max Mara clothing. I felt very lucky to have a job that was very stimulating and exciting. I liked feeling that the decisions I was making were meaningful and important because you're dealing with a lot of money. So that felt good. The financial world seemed to suit Emma. She was smart and successful, but emotionally. I was deeply unhappy with my father's death. And as a way to cope with that grief and kind of still carry on with life, which didn't feel like it was very easy when he died. I think I wanted to make him proud. And I knew that um, of all the things I could have done to go into that field would have been something that would have made him peaceful and not worried that I would be vulnerable in the world. I'd have a good job, I'd have money coming in, etc., etc. Those very basic things that a parent wants for their child. Emma worked in London and New York for a couple of years before being sent to Asia to work on investments there. And to her, Hong Kong was energetic and very exciting. So the week after being taken hostage in Jakarta, Emma returned to her base there as though nothing had happened. But something very profound had happened. And eventually, it caught up with her. My working day was no different, but my mind was different. What I found was that when I was doing anything 
in a usual way, like I was in the office sitting at the desk, right? Suddenly I would be completely and utterly back in that room and I would experience intense fear. Like I would break out in a sweat. I would be able to smell him. I would be able to hear his shoes walking towards me. And I would be in a completely different time. So my body would be in the office, but my mind would be completely locked in fear and terror. Um, and that just started to happen all the time, day and night. It became very, very hard to sleep. And so it's like, I guess people would say that it's like when you have nightmares in your sleep, but you kind of have them all day long as well. And you're certainly not going to mention it to anyone else, you know, especially not in a corporate investment environment, right? So you're worried by what's happening. You don't understand what's happening. You can't really tell anybody what's happening to you. So that's a pretty toxic combination. But there came a point about four months later where I just realized that I just actually couldn't couldn't do this anymore. I was walking back through Hong Kong Park and it's like this chief financial officer of the company was coming towards me and he, he fiddled in his jacket, like his jacket pocket or something, and it completely freaked me out because that's obviously I presume something was coming out of it, right? And I can remember just wanting to cry and being completely and utterly terrified, then realising that he had recognised me because obviously, you know, and just not knowing what to do and just running past him because I couldn't speak to him because I was so terrified. In my mind, he was coming with a gun for me, right? And so I think that, I just remember that was a pivotal moment at which I realised I can do this no more because I'm no longer seeing reality for what it is because I'm so in that room still in my mind. And your, your boss was none the wiser. Emma, she's doing yeah. great. Yeah. 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 Tough as nails. Yeah, exactly. Emma told her boss she wanted to go home. request wasn't granted initially because I think they thought I was fine because I'd done such a good job at hiding what was really going on with me. And what they didn't realise was this was me saying, I can do no more, you know. And I just got up and I walked to the lifts and that was it. I was done. I, I knew I just had to go home. Emma went back to England, but things didn't get better. Yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, it was even worse back in England, actually. Yeah, it was really, really bad. I don't know why, but it became very difficult. I couldn't read, I couldn't write. I, I just wanted to um, just end my life, really. It was really awful. The thing is that the incident was one thing, right? And people can understand that and sympathise with that. But what I was ending up suffering from was post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is very hard to explain to people. And I felt bad that I had it because I felt like I didn't understand why I had it because I thought I'd got over it. Eventually, I was taken on a special course for people who have survived hostage situations or very life-threatening conditions, and that, that was the start of the, the help I needed, really. The course was intense. But afterwards, Emma felt she could start to move forward again in ways she previously couldn't have imagined. When it was over, um, I gradually started to kind of reintegrate into life again and I went back to work part-time and then eventually uh, went back to work full-time but not for very long because by that stage I'd realised that I just didn't want to do that with my life anymore and I'd, I had fundamentally changed. What had changed? I just didn't find the financial markets very fascinating anymore. It just looked like a bit of a game. I couldn't really get involved with properly anymore, yeah. And I wanted to understand more about kind of who I was and what made me 
well and what made me happy and I didn't kind of want to waste my life anymore. Emma's mother saw that she was having a difficult time and thought she should try a brief getaway. So she signed her up for a mosaics course in Greece. So I went to make mosaics in Greece, which actually wasn't as exciting as I kind of had hoped. It was kind of glue and bits of china, you know. And, but it was there that I saw somebody doing some yoga and was really fascinated with what this woman was doing because I hadn't seen it before because yoga at that point wasn't as huge as it is now. And that was really the start of me realising that I needed to physically heal and that I discovered this huge passion and also quite a natural ability to be a flexible yoga person. I just knew I had to give myself some time to find a way to live differently. Being held hostage had left Emma feeling vulnerable, and yoga helped her build up her confidence. I think it took me many years to feel safe, to be honest, to be really honest, Uh, because the memories of the experience and the physical trauma kind of stayed in my body for a long time. The practice of yoga offered her a chance to get strong again, physically, but also mentally. And yoga, of course, is closely linked to Buddhism. It was very interesting to me that here was a philosophy which talks so much about the nature of mind, the nature of thought, the nature of suffering, the nature of mental suffering. It was very interesting for me because of the experience that I'd had. Emma travelled around the world for a couple of years, studying yoga and meditation. She returned to England to teach yoga. Her classes were full. But she became more and more drawn to the practice of meditation and into the Buddhist teachings of compassion. When was the moment you thought, this is it, I'm going to become a Buddhist? Well, it wasn't easy because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of institutionalized religion, to be honest. You know, even now I have my doubts about what happens when wonderful ideas become human institutions. So I was kind of wary, to be honest. But in the end, I just thought, you know what, I think I'm never going to understand this fascinating philosophy in depth unless I commit to it. So I did. Emma became a Buddhist in Scotland in 2003. But it took many years before she really committed to it. I didn't have a clear Buddhist path. I went on various courses, I did some retreats, but I guess I didn't have, probably what I didn't have is a teacher. I didn't have a teacher who could take me forward at that point. And then, in 2011, she went on a group tour to Bhutan. Yeah. You don't know why? Mm. Probably karma? Yeah. And then what happens? So I'm like Buddhist nerd on the group. Other people, they want to go shopping, they want to buy textiles, they want to look at mountains. I want to talk to meditators, right? I mean, try to wander around central London bumping into meditators in this Himalayan country. I know there's incredible meditators and Buddhist scholars and philosophers. So, yeah, it was a chance to talk to monastics and talk to people who felt meditation was a really important thing. So I just walked into a temple high up in the mountains in Bhutan, a place called Dochula. And you can see the profile of the Himalayan range on your right side. It's very high up in Bhutan, so it's very kind of blue and crispy. And we walked up these steps and smell of incense. And we went into this temple. And as I walked into this temple, there was a monk uh, 
over there on the right hand side in his red robes with a shaven head right and I think I see around him a silver crescent around his head I then wondered if it was just like the winter light but I felt a very strong kind of feeling of wanting to talk to him but then again I'd been talking to anybody who was in robes in Bhutan and then I started to talk to him and then I heard his voice and his voice had a very very powerful impact on me and I just thought I need to talk to you and then we sat down in the temple and we talked and I just completely lost track of time and then I got quite emotional I cried because I tried to explain that I wanted to be a kind person Meeting this man, or monk, Emma didn't really know who he was just yet, had a profound effect on her. She wanted to stay and spend more time with him to tap into his wisdom, but she was on a tourist visa and had to go back to England. A few months later, though, she was back on a plane to Bhutan to try and find him again. I thought I'd just go back to Dochla and walk in and he'd be standing right there, just like he was before. You know, I walked into Dochla Temple and there was somebody much taller there who clearly wasn't him, but he's a monk. And, you know, kind of looking at this monk thinking, who in the hell are you? You're not the right monk. And then the guy said, uh, no, no, the one that was here then, he's gone into three-year retreat. I'm sure I was supposed to come back and find this guy. You know, what, what's going on? And so I felt really, really crestfallen. But the driver, he gave his number to the monk. So we went to Dochler Resort to have a cup of tea. I remember just being completely floored because I was like, I'm sure this is the next thing. Now I don't know what to do. And while Emma was wondering what the next step was, the driver's phone rang. And he said, no, no, that wasn't a monk. It was the llama of the temple. And they found him, and he remembers you. And yeah, he'd like to meet you too again. And he's in his home village doing rituals right now. But he's going to come to meet you. And that's what he did. (laughs) Meets Lama Nima Searing. If you want to find a way to happiness, first you have to suffer. Without suffering, you will never know about the happiness. If you are always happy, you don't know what is suffering. Then if someone tells about suffering, they will never bleed because they never suffer. He says things like that. When Lama first met Emma, he had his doubts. I saw nothing, but we have done some conversations about Buddhism and meditation. From that, I got something touched in my heart. And after that, we apart from that time. But after a few months, again, she came back and she wants to meet me. So from there, uh, I totally changed my mind that she can practice. And I asked her to do some practice. She was very talented. <laughs> and that's where he gave me the mala beads that I wear today. They were his prayer beads, and he said, here, you're going to need these. And that's when I kind of knew, OK, you're, you're saying you're going to be my teacher. It was her past experience, her father's death, being taken hostage in Jakarta, that made him think she might be a good student. She had got many problems in her lifetime. So from there, when we have done conversations, then she understand everything about what is happiness. If you want to live a happily our strong, what we have to practice. From there she understood something, how to right away from the suffering, how to overcome the suffering, how to be strong. Emma went back and forth from England to study with him at the monastery in Bhutan whenever she could. 
but even Lama underestimated her. So he gave me these huge texts on compassion to read, right, massive. And I think he thought, oh, that'll shut her up. I'll see her in a couple of years. You know, kind of, he didn't know what he was dealing with, right? So I sort of read all of those and came back with a whole load of questions. I think he then he started to realise, oh, OK, she's actually really, really serious about this. And then he gave me some mantras to learn and I learned them off by heart. They're not actually that easy to learn, to be honest, in Sanskrit and Tibetan. And I think, again, he realised, OK, she's not kidding around here. Nowadays, if you were to pass Emma Slade on the street or, say, sit next to her at an airport, you'd probably turn your head. Because of her head. I have a shaved head and I'm wearing full-length red robes of a Buddhist nun. Because I am a Buddhist nun. <laughs> in August of 2012, less than a year after Emma found Lama in Bhutan, she began to live under vows. Lama and I never discussed me becoming a nun. Never. One day in November, he said to me, now you change your dress. I realized that he was telling me to stop being a layperson and become a monastic. And he had never mentioned it before. I never thought I could become a nun. And he never said what was going to be entailed. He just said, you have the mind of a nun. You have to become a nun. She's a... one of the Westerner people. But I asked her to be none. She's uh, qualified, she's very intelligent, so that's why I asked her. She agreed and she uh, have drawn and she now, I think now she is more better than me. <laughs> Emma was officially ordained a year and a half later, on very short notice. She found out the night before the ceremony and had no time to prepare. And it was about two hours long, all in Tibetan. And I had to speak back. When he spoke in Tibetan, I had to repeat in Tibetan, which I hadn't been able to prepare for and I didn't have the text for. So I just had to do my best. It was almost as though the ceremony was a test. I felt like I could fly, you know. I felt really kind of amazing afterwards, really strong and powerful and it was an incredible experience, yeah. But, you know, uh, I just wish Lama would give me a bit more preparation. before he does these things. <laughs> And how did she do during the ceremony? Did she do it right? Correctly? Yes, she's doing everything perfect. How is she doing now? She's doing everything perfect. She's studying too much now. Now she knows most of the Buddhist philosophies, like uh, books she reads daily. Now she understands more. She reads it in Tibetan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Is it hard for her to live the way you live? For her, she never said it is hard. At least she is telling that I will try my best. I can do. She never says, oh, it is hard. I will never do this. <laughs> I'm the only Western woman ordained in Bhutan. And I think I'm the only non-Asian who's been given the chance to monastically study in Bhutan. So what has been offered to me has been incredibly rare and I'm very lucky to have it. And in a way, her former life prepared her for the one she's living now. When you were working for this organization yeah. as a financial analyst, yeah. you were pretty much living a celibate monastic life, it sounded. You know, you're, you're not wrong there, actually. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But as similar as they might have been on some fronts, the contrast between the two worlds is usually extreme. And Emma is in a unique position to realize that. I can recall... 
being on holiday, wearing a bikini, you know, I can recall going out for a nice meal somewhere and having a glass of Chardonnay, right? I can recall them as memories, but I don't need to have them now. But I can remember what they were like because I've experienced them. Some monastics have never experienced them. So I kind of know what I've given up because I did once have it. Sometimes you have to wash your clothes in a bucket, right? Sometimes you have to wash yourself in a bucket. You know, you don't have any hair appointments or makeup to put on or clothes to buy or cars to service. In the nunnery in Bhutan, you have to ask permission to leave the boundary, right? So you can't just nip out to see a friend for cappuccino, unfortunately. She also has very few possessions. I have uh, some boots for when it's cold and sandals for when it's warm. And I have a jacket for when it's cold. And... um, Yeah, I mean, I have a sleeping bag. That's very helpful. I have a lot of books. It's for studying. Emma's room has a mattress, a pillow, a kind of desk, and that's it. But the view is great. Valleys, rivers, mountains. It's a peaceful, contemplative setting. But she's had to give up a lot more than just her material possessions. In the West, people ordain for short periods of time. You know, a year, three years... There's no option like that in Bhutan. It's either for life or you don't do it. So I can remember walking down that corridor thinking, I'm never, ever having sex ever again, you know. And I'm not that old. So, yeah, it's a big commitment. It's the only way forward. I couldn't go forward as a lay person. So, for those unwilling to make such sacrifices, what's the one thing Emma's odyssey, from the financial world to the mountains of Bhutan can teach people. What they have to learn is, from her story, they have to learn that if we try our best, if we practice, we can do anything. We can change and we can overcome the sufferings. Emma has taken her teachings in compassion and put them to good use. In 2015, she started a charity called Opening Your Heart to Bhutan that helps children with special needs there. That started her on yet another journey. I was trying to work out how to fundraise well for a country that a lot of people haven't visited and for a cause that a lot of people don't know about. So one of my students, one of my yoga students, said, you know, I don't know about your past life, but I've got a feeling it's quite interesting. Why don't you write your life story and sell that for the charity? And so, yeah, that's what I did. And that's the first time that people really knew what had happened to me. Up until that point, I'd still been pretty private about it. Emma's book is called Set Free, and all of its proceeds go toward funding the charity, which has made a big difference in the lives of children with special needs. And if there's one thing we know about Emma after all this, it's that she does not take half measures in anything. She is very, very, uh, what do you say, unique person. She's a very unique person. She's very intelligent. She's very wise. I want her to be most perfect nun. And is she your friend? Yes, yes, her best friend in my life. Emma lives at the nunnery in Bhutan full-time now, buckets and all, though she occasionally returns to the UK for her charity and to visit family. People often, even at airports, you know, I've had somebody sit next to me at an airport I've never met before and just say, You know, my dad's really, really ill, and I'm here because he's really ill. 
and you've never met this person before but they feel that they can talk to you and that you will respect their feelings and yeah I mean most people I handed my passport in at Delhi Customs not long back and the guy on the passport there said yeah what's the, what's the secret to happiness but I mean that's a huge compliment it shows that people want to consider these questions of profound meaning of what it is to be a human and where that feeling of peacefulness and happiness comes from and that's what we should be asking we should be asking those things those are the big things right yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, I think it's fine you know as long as they understand I probably don't know the answer <laughs> I give it my best shot Emma Slade We'll put links to both her book and charity on our website podcast.klm.com You've been listening to The Journey an original podcast brought to you by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines For more background on this story and to hear more stories about the trip that changed everything go to podcast.klm.com And why not review us on Apple Podcasts? It helps other listeners find this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Gruber.